You're listening to audio from The Orchard Church in Collierville, Tennessee. If you would like more information about our church or our ministries, please visit theorchardchurch.com. Go ahead and take your Bibles and go to Mark chapter 1. Two weeks ago, we began a series. We're walking through the biography of Jesus, as Mark tells us. And last week, John told us about Jesus uh, walking along and seeing fishermen and inviting them to follow him, and immediately they dropped what they were doing, and they followed him. And my question is, how do you explain that? In fact, let's just read that passage from Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, they saw, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. So he taps them on the shoulder, and without hesitation, they, drop what they, they leave their life, and they follow him. What would prompt people to do that? How do you explain that? These are people who have a career. They prepared all of their life for this career, and they, they do what they do well. These are people who have an identity. They know who they are, and people know who they are. They have roots. They have a family. They have a home. They've got lifelong friends. They're invested, and there's no safety net. In that day, there's no unemployment. There's no Social Security. So if this disciple thing doesn't work out, Uh, They're in big trouble. Some of them had parental obligations. Uh, Some of them had heavy capital investments in their business. And someone comes along and says, I want you to leave everything, and I want you to get in line behind me and follow me. And that's not the kind of decision you make quickly, and yet it says immediately they did it. So picture an old-time set of, 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 of scales. We've got a scale on this side, a scale on this side. And on this side, you've got your family, your home, your, your career, what you do, everything you know, what would have to be on this side to make it so heavy as to outweigh everything you've had? We don't think they're tired of fishing because later on, Peter and the boys, when they have a little free time, they go back to fishing. Uh, they're not spiritual giants. In fact, they're pretty dense, to be real honest. Um, they're not big risk takers. Uh, They don't have bad relationships. You know, I just can't wait to get out of the house. What would prompt them to do that? And they're not the only ones. You have your Bible open. Look at verse 28. At once his fame spread everywhere throughout the entire surrounding region of Galilee. Look down at at, um, uh, verse 33. That evening in sunset they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the house. Look at verse 37. Everyone's looking for you, says Simon. I looked down at verse 45. He went out, began to talk freely about it, spread the news, and Jesus could no longer even enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every, from every quarter. How do you explain the popularity of Jesus? I mean, the crowds got so big that he was almost forced to get up in the middle of the night if he wanted to be alone and pray, go up on a mountain somewhere. The crowds were so big, sometimes they forced him, they were about to push him into the water, and he had to get into a boat to, to teach. Uh, 
One time he fed 5,000 people, uh, men, that's not including the women and the children, maybe 20,000 people. Another time fed even more than that. The, uh, the high priest sent soldiers to arrest him, and they came back empty-handed, and they said, where's, where's your prisoner? And they said, nobody ever spoke like this man. We've never heard anything like what he is saying. How do you explain the fact that people followed him wherever he went? Why do you follow him? Why is that? Well, Mark gives us five snapshots in the life of Jesus. Four of them take place in one day. You kind of get a picture of a day in the life of Jesus. If you ever wondered what it would be like to be with Jesus for an entire day, you kind of get a picture of that. And he gives us five clues as to why people followed Jesus. The very first one is found in verses 21 through 28. Let me just read that. They went into Capernaum. Now, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth, but he moved and made his hometown, this little lakeside village called uh, Capernaum, maybe 15,000 people who were there. It's kind of a crossroads, a lot of people coming through, going, coming and going. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Sometimes we get confused with temple, synagogue. I mean, what? The temple is the one place in Israel where you made sacrifices. The synagogues were kind of like community centers. You would gather there, there was teaching, and whenever a visiting teacher or preacher would show up, they would be invited to make some comments, to, to say something. And so the word went out, Jesus is going to be teaching. He was beginning to gain some notoriety, some fame. And you can imagine the place was absolutely packed. And they were not disappointed. Verse 22, they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding regions of Galilee. Have you ever been in a church service like that? I have. I've been interrupted several times. One time I was preaching when my kids were young, and my youngest son, Charlie, sailed a paper airplane across the front. <laughs> I had to stop and, you know, give him the evil eye. In our very first service that we had as a church 10 years ago, over in the little chapel at St. George's, the fire alarm went off, and we had to empty the place. The, the Germantown uh, Fire Department came and moved everybody out, and I'm wondering, what am I going to do? This is our very first service, and we need this offering. <laughs> what are we going to do? But I had an experience similar to what this describes. I was, years ago, I was preaching at a, a youth camp in New Mexico, Sybil's Youth Camp, about five or 600 students who were there, teenagers. And I get up to preach one night, and this white-haired mom, uh, woman sitting out in there stood up and began yelling, he's lying, he's lying to these young people. I said, ma'am, I'm, I'm preaching the word of God. You are lying? And an older pastor that I knew went up to her, whispered something in her ear, and she sat down. I thought he cast a demon out. I, 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 I didn't know what had happened. So afterwards, I, I went up to him, and his name was Abel. I said, Abel, what did you say to her? 
He said, I told her if you don't sit down and shut up, I'm going to hit you in the face. I hope that, yeah, amen. So the story begins, Jesus is in the synagogue, he is teaching, the, the place is, is packed, and we get the first clue why people followed him, because he spoke truth with authority. It was brand new. They said, we've never heard anything like this. It, it, was, a, it was new to them. The typical rabbi of the day would quote this rabbi, Rabbi Hillel or Rabbi uh, Gamaliel. And when questions were asked that were difficult questions, they would never give their own opinion. They would give an alternative. Not Jesus. He was clear. He was direct. He was frank. Today we hear a lot of people who are like the rabbis um, tell us that uh, every religion is just as good as any other religion, and there are many ways to God, and all roads lead to God, and every truth claim is as good as every other truth claim. But Jesus was different. He spoke truth, and people were stunned when he would say things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Or, there is no forgiveness of your sins except through me. Or, there's no door to eternal life that does not pass through me. And people then were amazed when he said that, and they're still amazed when they read that he says things like this. And we fear authority because of abuse of authority. We've all experienced or seen abuse of authority, but Jesus has no problem with authority. He's very comfortable with authority. So imagine someone coming into your life who only speaks the truth. In a world of hype and scams and lies, you never have to wonder, are you hearing the entire truth? Imagine someone coming into your life, you know you're getting it straight. And imagine you becoming a person who only speaks truth because you've been with him. Well, you begin to get a sense why people were drawn to Jesus like they were in that day. And if you see him as a great teacher, you're exactly right. He was an incredible teacher. You would have been spellbound if you had sat there in the synagogue that day. And he's more than a great teacher. They didn't know it yet, but he was God in the flesh speaking to them. So he speaks truth with authority. Here's the second thing is he possesses power. What happens when the power and the goodness of God collides with extreme evil? Well, the spiritual atmosphere is you could, so thick you could cut it with a knife. Sparks are flying in the atmosphere. And some people wonder about this man with the demon. Is this just a, um, a psychological uh, maladjustment? Uh, is this a description of some kind of illness, maybe a neurological problem like epilepsy? I don't think so because he recognizes who Jesus really is. Did you catch that? He says, you are the Holy One from God. And he recognizes what Jesus has come to do. Have you come to destroy us? When Jesus would heal people, they would call him master or son of man or Lord. But typically when he would confront a demon and the demon would come out, the demon would scream the truth about him, his identity. There's a lot of stuff about demons, a lot of movies about demons. It's, you go on Netflix, it's on every other movie is about a, a, a demon. Mark has four exorcisms. Chapter 1, chapter 5, chapter 7, and chapter 9. It's really interesting reading. You might want to read about it this afternoon. But you read the gospel accounts about demon infestation, 
and they immediately recognize who Jesus is. It's as, as if they can see what other people cannot see. Did you know demons are believers? Demons believe in God. Demons believe Jesus is the Son of God. Demons believe He died on the cross. Demons believe He rose from the dead. In fact, later in the New Testament, James 2 says, you believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. But the demons believe without commitment. They know the truth. They refuse to act on it. They refuse to turn from their evil and embrace Jesus as their Lord. And the same thing happens with people today. There are many people, and perhaps some who are here, and you believe the Bible is the Word of God, and you believe everything about Jesus, and everything that He died on the cross rose from the dead, but you have never committed your life to Him, and you're no better off than a demon. You're as lost as if you had never heard about Jesus. And what happens is Jesus does not run from the, the, the evil spirit. And he doesn't do any magical formula. He doesn't make the sign of the cross. He doesn't go to Hogwarts. He speaks. Be quiet. Get out of here. And the demon obeys. Your dog doesn't obey like that. Your kids don't obey like this. There's an, old, there's an old song that comes, comes out of the Reformation. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. The, the kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of God is breaking in. And people have never seen anything like this. They've never seen power like this. And what about the man who's, who's delivered? What about him? He kind of drops out of the story. But we do know one thing. He has experienced liberation, freedom, because of Jesus' authority and his power. So imagine being with someone who is so full of power, you never have to be afraid again. If we had power like this, there's no telling what we would do. But what it tells me is, if he is with you, you have no reason to fear. He is Emmanuel, God with us. doesn't mean every problem is going to be fixed. It doesn't mean every prayer is going to be answered immediately. But what it means is you don't have to live with fear. I mean, later on, Paul said, what can separate us from the love of God? And he mentions every huge thing in the world. And finally, he says, nothing can separate me from the love of God. So my question is this, friends. What is the evil you need to be delivered from? What's the fear that has a lock on your life? What is it that you struggle with and you've not been able to overcome it? I invite you to bring it to Jesus, place it before him, and let him chase the demons away with his power. So he speaks truth with authority, <clears throat> he possesses power, and he creates wonder. That's the other thing that happens. Two times, three times it says they were amazed, they were astonished. In 15 different times in the book of Mark, it says they were astonished. Just knock the breath. They're astonished that he teaches like he does. They're astonished that he drives out demons like he does. And so everybody who was there left that day, and they're talking to anyone who would listen. And the same thing happens today. If you've had an encounter with Jesus, you can't wait to tell the people in your life. And that, was, that is what was happening 
that day. Imagine someone coming into your life that dispels the dullness and creates wonder. And you wake up every morning and go, what is he going to do today? You say, I already asked that about my husband. What's he going to do today? No, no. But what is Jesus going to do today? So he teaches truth with authority. He possesses raw power. He creates wonder in the lives of people. Look at verse 29. Immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Now, some people have said this is why Peter denied knowing Christ because he healed his mother-in-law, but I don't think that there's anything to that. That evening at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. Notice, friends, there's a difference between demons and disease. Not the same thing. And Jesus has supernatural power, and he has power over natural things. And it says he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. No sooner do they get home than Peter's mother-in-law is is found with a a fever. She's burning up. You can imagine what she said afterwards. There I was. I was lying there sick, burning up with fever. And he came in and he just touched me, took me by the hand and I felt great. And I thought, somebody's got to feed this crowd. I got to get busy. And she began to serve, which tells us the gift of health is meant to serve other people. And then all that evening, people were continually bringing those who were sick. You can imagine the smell, how awkward it was, those who were demon-possessed in in that village. And Jesus stays there long after dark, and he's touching people and healing people and restoring people to what they were meant to be. And once again, we just see his power, we see his authority, and creates this wonder And the people of Capernaum have never seen anything like this. And they're just bringing their friends. And what this says to me is this. Not only does Jesus have all power, but you can trust him. You can trust him. If we had this kind of power, you couldn't trust us. You can know, and some of you know what it means to have been touched by Jesus. You know what it means to stand before a holy God and know your sins are forgiven, and you've been adopted into his family, and you pray to a holy God. Some of you have experienced the reality that they experienced that evening there in Capernaum. And sometimes people say, well, does God still heal today? Indeed, he does. I've experienced it. Many of you have experienced it. I can't explain all the times when God does not heal, but he is still at work. He is still powerful. But even at its best, healing is temporary. All of these people died. Healing was a taste of something more. It was a picture of something more than simply physical health. And you say, well, then why did he heal at all? Because he loved people. He genuinely cared. And just as disease is a symbol of sin, healing is a sign of the healing of the soul. And the one who had the power to heal has come, and the kingdom of God is breaking in. Here's a fourth reason why people were drawn to Jesus, and that is they couldn't figure him out. He can be puzzling. Look at verse 35. 
Rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said, everybody's looking for you. And he said, let's go to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went throughout all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Have you ever been confused about what God is doing in your life? Well, I have. Have you ever thought, God, there's a golden opportunity here. If you just take advantage of it, even I can see it. And he doesn't. I don't know why Jesus won't come back into town. He's alone. What's he doing out there in the desert? He's recharging. He's restoring his soul. He's recalibrating. He knows the source of his strength. He's getting guidance. Do I stay here, Father? Do I go to the next town? What, what do I do now? Just tell me what to do. And he is focused. He's on a mission. He has a vision. And people are drawn to him because he knows why he came, where he's going. And he's always turned outward. He's always reaching out to those who have not heard yet. And so he's recharged and he says, I will not be localized. He's focused. Here's the fifth reason, the last one. He redefines holiness. Look at verse 40. A leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity. The word also means compassion. He stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly warned him, charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Leprosy uh, was a terrible disease. It was regarded like AIDS is still regarded in some places. The most common form of leprosy, uh, Hansen's disease, began with a general kind of sense of, of lethargy, and then these patches would be, begin to appear on your skin, and nodules would begin to come onto your face, and pretty soon they would break and the stench was horrible. And soon someone was not even recognizable. They would ulcerate, uh, foul smelling. Eventually your eyebrows would fall off. Your vocal cords would, would ulcerate. Your voice would become hoarse. Your breathing was wheezing. And the worst part was nerve damage. You just couldn't feel anything. Dr. Paul Brand worked with lepers for many years. And in one of his books, he talks about being in a village where a woman was cooking over a charcoal fire. And she dropped some food into the, into the fire, and she couldn't get the food with her tongs, so she nodded to an older man sitting there beside her who had leprosy. And he reached over right into the fire and pulled the food out. And Dr. Brand went over and looked, and his hands were blistered, and they were just stubs. He couldn't feel anything. It, it didn't hurt him at all. Um, lepers would have parts of their bodies disappear, and they didn't know why. Uh, uh, toes, fingers... And Dr. Brand had an observer sit in, in a room during a night where lepers were and watch, and he said rats would come out and gnaw off the fingers and the toes of these leopards, of, of these lepers, at, with no sensation at all. They'd wake up in the morning and they'd have parts of their body missing. We were uh, 
Ruthie and I were in India uh, a few years ago, and she reminded me after the first service, uh, we visited a leopard colony, a leper colony. And uh, my wife walked up to a woman who had stubs rather than hands and embraced her, and people began to come out of every side to, to be just longing to be touched because there was a stigma about leprosy. They were unclean. They had to isolate themselves. In, in fact, listen to Leviticus 13, 45 and 46. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of their head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lips and, and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So imagine life for a leper. Never to experience the hug of a child. Never to experience the embrace of a spouse or the handshake of a friend or a parent's arm around you. You're untouchable. And this man's breaking all the rules when he comes to Jesus, but he's desperate. I mean, what, what, is he, what has he got to lose? And he has a need that only Jesus can meet. And it's the most amazing act of faith. It says he kneels down. And in the language of the New Testament, that's a word that's used often for prayer or worship. So he's kneeling, he's worshiping before Jesus. And he says, if you will, not if you can. He's never seen a leper healed. No one has ever seen leprosy healed. But his question is not about his capacity. It's about his willingness. He knows he can. If you're willing, you can do that. And often, friends, it's an awareness of our own need that drives us to Jesus, isn't it? And here's the question. What will Jesus do? The law is clear. Lepers are, lepers are, are to be avoided. In fact, the rabbis practiced isolation. The rabbis believed that um, leprosy was an indication of sin in a person's life. And if you were holy, you were separated from sin and from the world. And so the holier you were, the closer you were to God, the more you did not associate with people who were sinful. And the, the greatest rabbis were totally unapproachable. And Jesus is approachable. You know, one of the gauges that you can use for your own spiritual development is to ask this question. How approachable are you by people that other people would reject? Am I becoming more approachable? Jesus is the perfect son of God, and yet he has sinners coming out of the woodwork to try to get close to him. And so this leper crouches before Jesus and looks up in his eyes, and every other set of eyes he's looked into have only disgust in them. He looks at Jesus, and look what Jesus does. He reaches out, and he touches the guy. What no one has done, he touches the untouchable. And here's my question. Did he touch him before he healed him, or did he heal him before he touched him? Which comes first, the touch or the healing? Look down at the text. Look at it. Which is it? Which comes first, the touch or the healing? The touch comes first. Why? He could have, could have just snapped his fingers, could have blinked his eyes, could have just said a word. And after the man is healed and clean, then he touched him. Why did he touch him when he was unclean? Well, the text says 
He was filled with compassion. He was deeply moved from the depths of his heart. And with that touch, Jesus is answering the doubts of anyone who wonders if God truly cares and understands. He's willing to take that man's suffering on himself, just like he did on the cross when he took our sin and our suffering on himself. Stuff that we are so ashamed of, and he takes it on himself. No wonder people were drawn to him. So if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I wonder what you see in all of these stories. I wonder what you see. Could you see yourself like this man running to Jesus, breaking through the barriers, getting down on your knees and looking up and saying, help me, heal me, cleanse me, forgive me, empower me? Could you see yourself bowing and worshiping him? And so often we think, well, I've I've, I've got to get cleaned up first. It's an amazing thing. This man came to Jesus while he was still a leper. If he had waited to get clean, he never would have come to Jesus. And often we think, well, I've got to get my spiritual life together. I've got to get these problems solved. I've got to take care of them. I've got to defeat this sin that's in my life. And then I feel like I can approach him. The only time to approach Jesus is now, just as you are. It's when you need him when you're aware of the fact that you're unworthy to come before him. So you see yourself falling on your knees and saying, I'm not worthy, but you care and you can touch me. And if you're here and you're a Christian, I wonder what you see in these stories. What do you see? If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, how do people know you're a disciple? Do they know it because you're approachable? Because you're compassionate? You see, Jesus, let me just say this to our church. Jesus did not call us to be a quarantine zone. Think of it this way. Imagine a hospital where there was one rule, no germs allowed inside. Imagine a hospital where the doctor said, boy, this was a really good day. I, was, I didn't get infected. All those sick people, they're full of filthy germs. They're outside. Some of them are dying, but I didn't get infected. I mean, we live in a world where sin and suffering and pain are contagious, and you hesitate to get close to people because you're going to pick up, you're going to pick up something uh, from them. But notice what happens here. Jesus, instead of getting leprosy from the man, breathes life and healing into him from himself. And let's admit the truth. We're not, sin is contagious. We're not immune because of the fall, because of our fallen nature. And the only way it's safe to be close to people who are so broken and so sinful is we are so full of Jesus ourselves. We are so full of the spirit of Jesus that we can show his compassion, demonstrate his love, proclaim his truth, and the kingdom of God has come. And Jesus just says, leprosy be gone. And it left him. Just couldn't coexist with the power of Jesus. Why does he strongly command him, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody. I mean, he broke that rule. He, he thought he knew better than Jesus. He began to tell everybody. And pretty soon, the one thing Jesus said he needed to do, get into the villages and teach the truth and heal people, he can't do because he's out in the desert. And all the people are coming to him. If popularity was the point, Jesus was a success. He couldn't get into town. There were so many people there. But he knew they had their own agenda. He knew they did not understand that his works 
were meant to point to his word. His miracles were meant to point to his teaching. That the point was who he was and why he had come. And they would not understand. They had their own ideas of what the Messiah should be. And it was just a hindrance to him. So Jesus presents himself as the authoritative, powerful, compassionate Savior. And the demon-possessed man knew it. And the people in the synagogue that day knew it. And the disciples knew it. And the mother-in-law of Simon knew it. And all those people who got healed knew it. And all those people who got demons cast out knew it. And the leper knew it. Do you know it? You see, there's a warning here. It is possible to believe in Jesus and not bow to his authority. In fact, Alexander McLaren, an old preacher, once said, it's possible to recognize Jesus for what he is and hate him all the more. It's what the rulers did, what the Jewish leaders did. They saw all the miracles and did not bow before him. He is the authority we need in our lives. Just like the sun, it's right for the sun to be in the center of the universe and everything orbits around the sun. It is right for Jesus to be at the center of your life and everything else orbit around him. And it just fills life with wonder. And you see, you see things happening you can only explain by saying, only God could do this. And you live under authority and you see people's lives being changed around you when you bow down before his authority. You're listening to audio from The Orchard Church in Collierville, Tennessee. If you would like more information about our church or our ministries, please visit theorchardchurch.com.